Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Will Lynch, and I'm the Associate Editor of Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Matt Edwards, the UK artist who makes music as Radio Slave and who runs the label Records. Over the last 10 years or so, Edwards has kept himself very busy, dipping his toes in everything from balearic music to Japanese toy design. But for most of his adult life, Edwards has been primarily interested in one thing, raves. He loves playing them, he loves making music for them, and more than most professional DJs, he loves simply being at them. As he told me here at our office in Berlin, this lingering passion has shaped his sound as an artist and remains as strong as ever today, more than 25 years since his first party. You can hear our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The Exchange with Matt Edwards, aka Radio Slave, up next. milestone for records yeah i mean this this year 2016 is uh 10 years of the label started uh in may back in 2006 how are you going to mark the occasion right now we're planning um events we're also looking at the back catalogue we're talking to some of the artists we've worked with in the past we're also yeah, we're, we're working on some interesting concepts. You know, there'll be the usual, maybe a compilation, maybe a box set. You know, I mean, of course, these days it's not as easy to pump out compilation CDs or, you know, the maybe some of the more uh, traditional formats. So we're looking at some interesting ways of kind of maybe revitalising, but maybe bringing some, some young guns, new people to have a go at the, the music. So what's an example of like an interesting new way? Yeah, it's too early to maybe say. But we're working on it, yeah. yeah I mean, sure. we've been working on it a long time. One of the things we're doing, we're working with Japanese producers. We'll be doing a Japanese um, remix CD, including some of your you know, favourites like DJ Nobu and cool. Kumiya Tanaka, people like that. So, yeah. Any toys? No toys, but maybe T-shirts. I mean, I would love to make more toys, but um, they're really expensive. And... Um, Maybe in the future. I mean, we're working with this young Korean artist, Peggy Gu, and uh, yeah, she's a great illustrator, and she's she's come up with some cool, really cool characters. So um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Won't rule it out. No, I've uh, launched this this new web store, Love Hangover, and with uh, one of the concepts of it being like this marketplace for cool stuff, you know, will be the possibility to to create art toys items, stuff like that. So when you started Records, or when Records 
was born. Yeah. Did you have any inkling that this would still be, you know, one of your main projects will be part of your day-to-day life 10 years later? I guess we were looking at it being a kind of traditional record label, signing artists, kind of building the catalogue. You know, in 2006, we could sell a lot of records and we could sell albums CDs, and this was before the kind of, well, the digital wave of like Beatport, you know, that kind of took over. So when we started, we had big plans. And of course, that's changed all the way along the line. I'm just super happy that the label's still there 10 years later. I mean, it's very easy these days for a lot of people, I think, just to say, you know, I'm done with this. Let's start something new. You know, it seems like everyone wants something new. So to have a, a label... It's still there and I think it's still relevant. I think we, you know, we're signing really cool music. I, I love the, the stuff we're signing. I've, you know, I've got a good team and um, looking back, you know, I mean, I probably had no idea what we were kind of doing at the time. We knew maybe what we wanted to do, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed all the way along the line. If you could um, go back in time yeah. and find your younger self, yeah. Matt Edwards, 10 years ago, thinking about starting yeah. a label, if you could give that younger self one piece of information, Yeah, what would it be? Well, that's a good question because I was actually, I think I was at Watergate in 2005 and Trevor Jackson was there. And of course, Trevor was doing output at the time, his label, and, you know, signing a lot of bands like LCD Sound System. His advice to me was, if you're going to start a label, then don't sign anyone else. Just release your own music. And kind of... Looking back or maybe looking at what's going on now, I think that's not a bad word of advice. I mean, if you look at Robert Hood or Moody Man, Kenny Dixon Jr., you know, all those guys kind of just release their own music. You know, they have their own platform and they do their own thing. I mean, I think the problem with me is I'm I'm still a fan. I'm still like a, a kid in a candy shop and an enthusiast and a collector. So the minute I hear something new or I discover something, I want to release it or give it the best kind of platform or, or, or you know, do something with it. Hmm. So that's that's maybe my downfall is, is that, you know, but we're still here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but I feel like in a way, you, um, over the years, records at least has been pretty focused. You know, like yeah. you've had these sort of core artists, a few of them since the beginning. And even if, you know, new people come in, it does have the feeling of sort of a you know, kind of like a coherent little band of artists. Yeah. Uh, like it's clear what records represents. Then you, you're kind of at center stage as well. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had that kind of gang mentality, which <laughs> has kind of inflicted a lot of other in, independent dance labels. You know, I think one thing I've always been into is is music with personality. Of course, working with someone like Nina, she's got an amazing personality. She's, you know, full of this energy, creative energy, and working with her and seeing what she's done, you know, it's, it's been incredible. I think with records, it's, it's gone from everything, from disco to house, techno. Also, through, along the way, we've kind of been part of some of these trends, which in some ways might have uh, benefited us or, and, or otherwise, but especially with a track like Grindhouse, which became such a huge hit, you know, that pushed the label into another direction or another world but yeah it's interesting yeah i guess in to me um it might just be a result of when i first heard of the label but in my head as you said records releases 
a nice variety of different mm. sounds. And also you've got a bunch of other, you've had many other projects over mm. the years with all different sounds from serious techno to balearic. But nonetheless, when I think of Radio Slave records, I guess what jumps into my mind first and foremost is this big, like utilitarian sounding groove oriented, yeah. like club music. Yeah. Um, is that the way it feels for you, or is that just one of many things? No, I mean, I think that's always been the, the core essence of records, has been re releasing music for clubs. We're doing that right now, working with artists like Marcus Zucker, or, you know, all the other guys that we're working with, or girls. And um, I love all kinds of music. I know I, I love buying ambient music. I love buying kind of weirdo whatever, you know, I'm trawling the record shops every week. But... You know, what I really need is music that I can play. And that's what we've always tried to do with records. And, you know, whether it's disco or house or techno, it's about releasing records that, I mean, I'm not going to say accessible, but playable, you know. And I think these days a lot of people try and deviate from that. And it's very easy these days to release a very obscure, grainy, weird record. It's, for me, that's, that's great. But I'm primarily a DJ and always have been. And I mean, I, w I just want to put out music that I can play. So mm. that's, yeah, that's that's it. I think playable kind of uh, sells it short. Cause yeah. Someone like Marcus Sucker is a great example. And also things like the No Sleep series. Like, yeah. You know, the original Grindhouse, it might be playable, but it's definitely not a standard track. No, it's no. very long. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but, but I guess playable in our world, you know. Yeah, sure, You know, sure. like the Panorama Bars or... Clubs like or being in Japan where you can play for nine hours and you have the, the time. So mm. it's our little world, you know, and this is it's a club world. It's, you know. Mm. Often when someone says something is a functional club record or it's yeah. playable, that sounds like faint praise. Um, yeah, but I think that that's, I read, read a lot of reviews and I also go to the shops all the time. And there's a lot of music being put out there that's not functional. You know, it's very cool and it's very arty and it's lovely, but it's not playable. And I think a lot of the guy, these guys that are making this music, when they come and play in Berlin, they're then playing retro house mm. records because they can't play their own music. So that's what we're, we're doing or that's mm. what we're about, you know. I think it's also important <laughs> to sort of acknowledge that it's not just that it's easy to play. It's no. that if you play these tracks in a club, it just really, really, sometimes to a surprising extent, just totally works um, yeah. from the way the drum sound on a big sound system to the, the sort of pace with which the track unfolds yeah. like you know hi-hat pattern comes in at the exact right time like yeah. it sort of reminds you that it might seem like as you said a sort of grainy techno record um somehow has more artistic credibility or something yeah. but there really is an art form to making a record that just works perfectly um, yeah. in a club i guess as like a as an art form, yeah. like, why is that so captivating to you? So it's one of these things, we're always looking for the perfect beat, always trying to f search for the perfect arrangement. It's that constant search and for these records that are just that are magic, that create that kind of magic in a club environment. I think, you know, again, that's why I think people are, are really going back and looking at the past. Because I think, you know, I think... It, House and techno has been around for a long, long time. There's some great examples, and I think a lot of this, these great examples are records that work the best in, in clubs. And, you know, I'm 
as well with the remixes I've always done. I mean, I've always tried to, to close my eyes and think about how it would sound, or if say I think about say someone playing it like Ricardo or whoever, and you know, with the structure and a lot of the times, I would just well, I still do. I just let the track record and I try not to look at the the screen. Hmm. In 2016, it's going to be again more focused on the dance floor. Hmm. It's obviously different if you know you find yourself in clubs most weekends just automatically. But yeah. um, how often do you turn up at a rave just <laughs> just for fun? Well, how often? I mean, I I was I was at Berkheim last weekend. <laughs> Actually, no, it was two weekends ago. I was there on a Sunday night, just before my my girlfriend gave birth. So I got a phone call <laughs> and had to leave the club. So. Um, so yeah, I do pop out, and of course, living in Berlin, I'm extremely fortunate and lucky that you know have the have places such as the club that's just around the corner from here. And you know, in that respect, I think maybe if I was living somewhere else, it would be difficult for me. But living here, it's great, and you can you know you can go and hear some really good music. Congratulations on thank baby. you. <laughs> um, yeah, the reason I asked that, I guess, is. Um, this might not actually be true. It's kind of like an anecdotal observation, but I find a lot of artists that um, it often goes like they pump out these wicked club bangers early in their yeah. career, and then it kind of gets sort of trippier and more subtle as time goes on, like you know, yeah. Ricardo Villalobos or something. It's interesting to remain, you know, so inspired by just the club experience, um, the rave yeah. experience. So I guess it, in a way it makes sense that the reason you're s- still inspired to make those tracks is because you s- still personally enjoy that experience yeah i mean yeah. i'm still i guess over the last few years i think maybe in 2013 i had a moment where i was a little bit like confused or wasn't really sure about what i wanted to play and but right now no, i'm i'm really really into it more than ever and um love a lot of the new music that's coming out at the moment and um yeah it's, it's great i think we're going through a great period of of club culture hmm. so it's yeah it's good I mean, basically, you're part of the generation that was just right place, right time, right as rave culture yeah. hits the UK. I've sort of got the impression that that's something that, I guess, unsurprisingly, you still kind of carry with you. For instance, like naming the record uh, "Children of the yeah. E," or like the, you know, there are little uh, shoutouts. But um, as someone who's like not old enough to have been there, I guess I would have imagined that, like, if you were there for those sort of pivotal moments, that today's uh, atmosphere would you know pale by comparison. Yeah, I mean, you could could look at it like that. I mean, I, it's, I guess it's the same way as when I was fifteen or sixteen and I first heard James Brown. I mean, I wasn't there when the records came out, but it was it still blew me away. And I think no matter how far we progress with technology, sound systems, or how you play the music, kids still love to go out and party and be part of this social environment. So yeah, I mean, it's it's great to see young people really, um, really into electronic music. I think it's kind of weird. It's kind of because maybe five or six years ago, there was still like a indie scene, I guess, or maybe there still is. But I think kids are, these days, it's just electronic music. That's what they're into. And uh, back when I was first going out, you know, we didn't have a lot of the things you have now. So all the technology to um, to make music on your own, stuff like that. So, it, you know, it's... I think it's as, as exciting now as it was back then, but in mm. different ways. Mm. There was definitely more ro- romanticism involved in the, the music scene going out 
because you didn't have this social networking or or the internet. So it's very different. There's this um, theory, I guess you could say, um, that I've always sort of mulled over. There's um, this guy, Leyland Kirby, the caretaker, um, said Mm. he did an album called The Death of Rave. Right. And he sort of put forth this opinion that, at least in his experience, going out to illegal parties in the UK in the early 90s, he felt like it wasn't just that it was really fun or that you're connecting with these people. Mm-hmm. It was There's also an element of um, a very uh, powerful kind of optimism of, like, the future is yours or, the, you know, yeah. it belongs to this generation. Like, almost, like, vaguely borderline political sort of triumphant side yeah. to it or something. And he said um, the first time he went to Berkine he felt really depressed because he felt like that wasn't there at all. <laughs> right. What do you think about that? For sure. I mean, I, I compared uh, my last visit there to being, it was like being in a set from Terminator. That's how <laughs> I felt. It was like going back to 1984, kind of a mix of goths with this kind of, you know, this electronic music. But it was great. I'm not I'm not saying it's bad. But um, when I was growing up or um, in my teens or late teens, and I think guys like Jeff Mills always talk about this. I mean, I think... We were like a generation that were obsessed with science fiction or sci-fi. This is moving away from your political point, but the, um, it was always about the future, you know, future thinking. So the music was always, I guess, this kind of had this sci-fi future looking forward element to it. And I guess the millennium is looming. Yeah, and I think that, that feeling kind of it vanished as the 90s went on, you know. You know, of course, albums from Model 500... Or there, you know, there was still this kind of sci-fi kind of vibe, but um, yeah, it, it changed. But you're not too nostalgic. It seems like you're, you you won't you won't say like it's not what it used to be or whatever. No, I mean I was really fortunate, really lucky, and I was yeah in the right place, right time. I was lucky to go to clubs like Ministry of Sound when they first opened, and hear Larry Levan play all night. And I think artists and acts like Future Sound of London really influenced me when I was like 19, 20, because I'd, I'd never heard a lot of New Wave or New Beat or um, these kind of strange European records. Hmm. You know, I think growing up in mainland Europe, I think great, if you grew up here, you're, you you hear this this kind of this stuff if you listen to, if you listen to the radio back then, blew my mind at the time. So, but yeah, I, I think now it's the same. I think if you're a kid and you, you know, even if you turn your laptop on, and you discover whatever, I still think it's just as exciting. Well, I hope it's just as exciting. I think it's maybe the way that you um, absorb it or consume it. I think back in the 80s and 90s, you know, reading a magazine, you had to imagine what something was like. Or you you bought an album and you you played that album to death. You know, or if you went to see a movie, you had to have the memory of the movie. You couldn't go home and turn on your laptop and watch it again, or even, you know, or it was yeah, it was completely different. So yeah, I've actually heard that exactly what you just said as an explanation for um, part of the unique allure of uh, Berkine. Yeah, yeah, it's, for um, sure. I mean, it's, it's, what yeah. you, it's just it's just in your memory. There's yeah, you know. exactly. I mean, I th- and I think that's important. I think um, you know, having that imagination or you know that romanticism of of what it's about, you know. We would read back in the early 90s about, you know, disco DJs or Larry Levan or even Chicago guys, you know, and these were all just like, you know, you'd have this image in your mind of how it was, what the, you know, you couldn't just go online and download the the set, you know. Mm. So it was, it was very different. 
So by the time um, Records started, you'd actually already been a professional DJ, you know, in one form or another. Yeah, for, for a long time, yeah, for right. about 15, 16 years, yeah, right. 15 years. And your first gig was? First gig was in back in uh, London in, I think it was 91 or 92 at the, the Milk Bar, right. which was a very small club just off uh, Charing Cross Road. Yeah. So like, how did you get from, like how did it happen from, you know, your first rave experience where you know you're in, you're introduced to the culture, yeah. To then you have a residency at Milk Bar. It wasn't a residency. It was uh, it's just, just a, it, just it was a kind of a one-off gig for a friend. Um, it was actually uh, I think it was a Saturday night with David Durrell and Pete Tong, and I got invited to play because one of them couldn't make it. And uh, from there, I mean, it was yeah. The nineties were kind of hazy days. A lot of illegal raves in Wales and. That was with, again, I was living in London, traveling there. So I was experiencing all these kind of new clubs in London, like Club UK, Ministry of Sound, which I was later resident at for open all hours. And and then on the flip side, I was I was traveling to these illegal raves in the woods. And yeah, it was, it was fun times. But from there, I ended up moving to Brighton and um, started making music again. And, and then, yeah, fast forward to 2006 and... I've suddenly become well. I've been doing a lot of a lot of remixes. I think from two thousand and three to two thousand and five, yeah, was kind of the the heyday for me of working with pop artists and doing remixes for Elton John or Paul McCartney, that kind of stuff. How did you get started on that? How did that happen? I was really lucky. I guess a lot. I met a lot of quite well known DJs back in the early nineties from going to parties in London. Being part of that rave scene, the, the club scene was much smaller. There weren't the the sub genres that there are now, so um, it was very easy to meet people and uh, a lot of good times. So there was a lot of bonding, and um, yeah. So through those connections, um, I was I was really frustrated at the end of the nineties with a lot of remixes, a lot of remixes, and um, but I liked a lot of I still liked a lot of the more pop. Oh, pop tracks basically they were in the charts and and this Kylie track Can't Get You Out of My Head started to be promoed and um, at the time I was really really into disco and uh, and really into medleys and listening to like Walter Gibbons and his kind of remixing style <laughs> so I decided to put these two kind of two or three records together and make this kind of remix mm. and I gave it to a friend and it was played on Radio 1 and like that was it, basically. Um, when you say you put two or three records together, yeah. is that the Walter Gibbons style? Yeah, it was kind of, it was more kind of like a disco. It was more like a, an edit kind of way of remixing. So in a sense that it was really taking, overlaying tracks. It wasn't really a remix as such. It was more like a re-edit. Mm. It had a segue through the middle where it segued into Brian Ferry, Angel Eyes and then cut back into Kylie so it was very long it was like 12 or 13 minutes but it was it was more of a medley it wasn't actually a remix as a traditional remix is done Was that your beginning as a producer doing those pop remixes? Yeah I mean I, I made music in the, the 90s with two friends and we had a small studio and we released some records and we're actually going to look back at some of these these productions this year and we signed some other we signed records by uh, Justin David, who uh, runs the Isono company, they make isolators for turntables, and he's produced mm. the 
mixer for floating points. And also this other artist, uh, Sir Lord Comics. This was going back in the 90s, but yeah, I kind of stopped making music around 97 and then didn't start again until, until 2000. This was when I discovered that I could produce music on my own. Or back then it was with a friend, and um, but it, this was with a PC, and I had experience from with computers when I was a designer when I was younger. So I kind of I found it quite easy, <laughs> you know. And I think back then I kind of I was passionate and and I kind of had this kind of anger, not you know about maybe what I wanted to achieve. So I was very hungry for it, you know. You recently left a comment on RA. And which he said something like, as a producer, the only way to properly realize your dreams, your, yeah. what you have in your head, is, is to give all your time to the studio. Yeah. Was there a specific point where that's what happened with you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I think on the comment, I mean, I think looking back at the early 90s, I mean, it was so common for a guy like myself. I, I met... I made friends with these two guys and they had a studio. And I, of course, if you can have a studio on your own, or I mean, for me, it was always difficult to express myself when, you know, you've, you have th- three other minds or, you know, three yeah. other people in the studio. And I think, you know, the, the only way you can really realise what you want to do is to do it yourself, you know. Of course, with music, it's very different. I mean, it depends on what you're making, you know, as well. But for me, it was important to 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 produce the music myself. Yeah. When was it that you kind of turned that corner? Where like now now you're you live in your studio. Well, I think I um, I sacrificed everything when I had my own little studio in Brighton, and I would be working every day. I mean, I had a a part time job working at a call center for a bank, and I would work there from seven to eleven in the morning, so four hours a day. It would just bring in some money and. Um, Every other hour was spent at home working. And, you know, from this, very quickly, I kind of, I started making music with Joel Martin and the Quiet Village project was formed. And, yeah, I think we just realised that we, you know, for years we'd kind of looked at studios as being kind of like scary places, like for <laughs> me, you know, quite daunting because, you know, there was so much to learn, you know. But then with the computer, we could, you know, it was very easy to sample, but not sample just for like two or three seconds, but, you know, sample endless amounts of music. And so it was, yeah, it was good. What were the um, results of all those hours in Brighton? Well, I mean, I think I did some of the best music I've ever made back then. I think the albums like the record album for Soul Jazz and um, I had a really nice room. It was perfect spot in a, in a, in a loft. Yeah, I mean, I was I was doing a lot of remixes, and I think around maybe about twenty or thirty a year. I can't remember, but a lot. So, but you know, I was really enjoying it. I was loving being in the studio and being so creative. And uh, you know, I think a problem for for all of us. Well, the more successful I came, or the more time I spent on the road, the less time I had. And then I started forgetting how I was doing things. Hmm. I mean, I think I look back at remixes I've done, like the Peace Division. You know, which Nina plays or Rod had and now and I'm I'm like I don't know how I made it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to make music, you've got to devote all your time to it. You know? Or at least have a period in your life where yeah. you have this monk like devotion. To- yeah, yeah. And I think it shows. I mean, when I was studying fine art, you know, the the teacher that we did the life class, he was like, You said if you want to do this, he said you need to do it every day. Hmm. 
you know, I think, you know, with, with making music, well, the repetition of doing it, I think it's, it's great, you know. I think you learn so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I remember hearing some quote about how the Beatles never would have been the Beatles unless they had a residency playing every night of the week at a club yeah. in Hamburg. If, if they didn't clock all those hours. Yeah, for sure. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's the same with DJs as well. I mean, you can really tell DJs that are DJs that, you know, have that had long residencies in clubs. It really shows on how they play, how relaxed they are. Hmm. If you look at Sven Vaith, he's so relaxed. <laughs> Maybe too relaxed, but he's very <laughs> relaxed, you know, and he only plays vinyl, but he does it so well. And this comes with uh, confidence and also, you know, just the, the amount of time you spend on things. So, And I guess just feeling completely at home in yeah, that situation. Yeah. And I, I mean, back in the early 2000s, I was kind of blown away by um, producers like Dave Taylor, Switch, and also um, James Holden. And I think they, they both became masters of their craft, you know, within the computer. And I think they, you know, the music they, that they produced was really, you know, very forward thinking. And it really showed, I think Dave like, was holed up for years learning logic and just, he nailed it, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like sort of again and again, you're sort of pointing out the arrival of the computer as yeah. a, an important turning point for you. And yeah. you know, why did the PC kind of unlock your creativity the way it did? I guess it was just that kind of like, just the hands-on side of it. I've I trained as a graphic designer, and I've always loved using my hands and that kind of, I guess, creating collages. I guess that translates into music and, and sound and with sampling and, you know, with, and just the, the accessibility gave me the options or the ability to to do what I wanted to do. And that, that's it, you know, and <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Mm. And before, I mean, now, I mean, I do a lot, of, a lot of projects in other studios and, I used hardware with stuff, but, you know, and it's, it all depends on what you're trying to create, you know, and what you're trying to achieve in the studio. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess whether it's true or not, there's kind of an idea floating around that the advent of producing music on computers mm-hmm. and things like Logic, Ableton, etc. Yeah. People are fond of saying that that gave us like a wave of you know, really amateur music. Or, yeah, um, I guess it's the same with same with graphic design and designing. It happened in the same way with, with, with the Apple Mac. Or, yeah, it was um, exactly the same. And it's even kind of the same. There's a parallel too with blogs versus newspapers, yeah. and they're, for sure, it's the empowerment of the amateur. I guess it's interesting though to hear that maybe in addition to you know 16 year olds with a cracked copy of Ableton, yeah. there are also some of the most influential artists you know, in recent memory, um, uh-huh. like James Holden or something. Um, it's it's interesting just to hear that for really serious artists like them yeah. as well, the, the you know, the arrival of production software was, you know, yeah, of essential. Course, yeah, and of, of course, I, I think it's, I think it's all about ideas and um, and having ideas. I mean, of course, you've, you can make mistakes or, or find weird things happening with a computer as well, you know, that enable producers to have their own sound or a unique sound and yeah again it's all about having ideas I mean if you've got no ideas and you're not going to make music on anything hmm. and I think that this day and age or say in 2016 I think a lot of guys or people get caught up in having so much hardware but in the end of the day I mean do you want to sound like a producer from 1998 
You know, I don't want to hear music that was. I, I mean, I I love this this sound, but I I want to hear forward thinking music, not music that's so retro sounding. You know, so it's very easy to copy as well, and that's the thing. I think you know, I think it can be a nuisance, but it also it's a great thing. So yeah, it's up to the individual, the user. Mm. I say. <laughs> Yeah, I read, um, I think it might have been the, the interview you did with RA at this point, like six years ago or something like that. He said something like, imitation is like a big problem in yeah. in your life in general. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Or what, what? how does imitation, you know, hurt the scene, I guess? Well, I guess, the, I mean, this is the thing. I guess there's so many people making music and it's so accessible. And I guess if you look at like other things, like if you look at, say, Instagram, I mean, it gives people the instant gratification that they're a great photographer with all the filters. And I think you can have that with music as well. And I think um, lots of software enables people to go, wow, I'm amazing. You know, when, you know, it's maybe the, that's the thing that maybe it maybe does look great or sound great, but how many times do we want to hear the, the same thing or see the same thing, you know, so... It, I think it's difficult to stand out in the crowd these days because there's so much noise. But, yeah, I don't know. Well, you kind of touched on something there with something like Instagram gives a non-photographer the instant gratification. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in photography, music... Well, I think it's anything. the same, with, the same with, with DJing. And, I mean, the same with, with using a laptop or using CDJs with a pen drive the sync button i mean it gives people that that gratification and it's great and it is great because it means people can go wow look at me i'm i'm mixing two records and yeah that's it gives them that feeling that they're a dj or they're a photographer or they're yeah. a producer so i feel like to some extent an obvious truth is maybe why that has such a magical effect is because yeah. the reality is that being really good at anything can take very frustrating amount of time yeah. in many cases. And it's basically, I think it's interesting to, you know, your kind of, your story is an example of it. Yeah. That, um, you know, it's not till 16 years after you start gigging that um, you set up a label and um, yeah. you probably started gigging around the world and, you know, so more than 10 years after you started. Um, yeah, I, I think going back to the label and records, it's so easy these days for people just to give up, I think, or, you know, not see things through and not really learn about something. And I think uh, it's so easy just to say, okay, this isn't working. We'll start something new. You know, we, we won't see it through. You know, and um, a lot of people, when I was going through some difficulties with records, they were like, just, you know, just close the label, start something else. But records have been around for a long time. And it was, um, we had, some, we've got some great music, great artists, and it would be, we'd be a shame. But I think these days, that throwaway element goes through everything you know and it's it's just like let's let's see it let's listen to it that's it you know well let's move on you know i'm, I'm, I'm sure with with resident advisor if you stream something that's as far as people will go with it you know they won't entertain the idea of visiting a record store or, or even going on a web store that sells vinyl because they have listened to it and they'll go that's great but what else have you got what's next you know so and that's good. Both that's both you know that's quite that's frustrating, but you know I'm I'm proud with what we've achieved with records, and you know I think it's we've still got a long way to go. So I don't you know I see it 
see it working really well. Yeah, something I, I was wondering about was um, you've seen a lot of pretty dramatic ups and downs. Yeah. As you said, when you started the label, you could expect to sell a number of records that would probably be inconceivable today. Mm. And, you know, you had some hard knocks. The label went on hiatus a few years yeah. ago. Was it ever difficult to, you know, ma- maintain the confidence that you should keep doing this? It's a constant battle to navigate through this kind of world, this the music industry. And it is ever-changing. Things are... I mean, it's... When we started records we could yeah we could we could sell quite a few thousands of if each 12 inches and and sell thousands of albums still sell sell cds and of course then everyone went digital you know everyone it was like sell your records all the djs were selling their vinyl you know uh, records became kind of not worthless but they they lost their value and now we're in a in a phase where there's a vinyl revival and so it's it's always changing, you know, and I think, yeah, I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy, I, I really love, I mean, I, I look at the, your site every day and sites like Hardwax, Dex, Juno every day in case I miss something. So, you know, I, I love it. I love this kind of, I guess it's gone, it's become much more of a cottage industry, but it's a big one, you know, and and, and everyone seems to have their own labels. So it's, it's a kind of a, there's also that their fight to to have your place and and also you know um, and release music. It's interesting though, a cottage industry as opposed to, I guess, you know, just ten years ago it was like a regular full blown industry. We yeah, I mean, easily make a living from selling techno twelve inches. Yeah, I think it's funny because people always say, well, you know, there was there was loads of people writing about how the electronic music's here, EDM, you know. But if, if you look back to the nineties, the early nineties, every pop artist had a remix by someone like Master at Work, David mm-hmm. Morales. You know, they were spending, record companies were spending so much money on remixes and, you know, you'd have these Todd Terry triple pack f- promo. So, you know, it was really big back then. But of course, the record companies had money. You know, you could sell records to people. People had no other option but to listen to music on a turntable, if it was a single, maybe there was a single CD, that was it. And, you know, records were broken in clubs. That was the thing, you know, the record labels would give DJs the acetates and that's how it would work, you know, and it's very different now, you know, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it's only big in the way that it's really, it's an event industry (laughs) and that's that's what's driving this whole mechanism. It's not... You know, it's not the record labels, you know, it's completely the opposite. It's basically the record labels are kind of like a side project yeah. to the <laughs> DJ gigs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's input. It's still so, so important. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm really in, in awe of a lot of labels that are, have been going for years, you know, like, say, Pearl On. I mean, there's, so, there's, there's quite a few, you know, that just still do their thing. They don't sell uh, their music digitally. They've got their own vibe. That's what they do. And I think it's it's great. And there still is a fan base for that, that for music. But I think it's um, it's it's still very odd that, you know, a, a label like Records or another independent label, we can now, now only produce a, 
a limited amount of vinyl, you know, we're considering how many millions of people are actually into hmm. this culture. Yeah, I mean, it's weird to think that the same artist who, you know, presses only 500 copies of his latest 12-inch will play to crowds of thousands yeah, on the yeah. festival, you know, festival circuit. Yeah, but I think, I mean, as long as I think, as long as those artists, as long as they're, they're, they're giving something back, I mean, I love buying records and I, I'm, I'm not so into... I don't really download music so and I really like to support the scene and I think as long as um, people are doing that I think it, even if it gets smaller and smaller I think there'll still be a, a core audience and a core amount of labels that will have the ability to release music you know on vinyl that is you mentioned that before that um, uh, it's, it sounds like you buy records completely as a normal you know, yeah. record nerd. From the way you're talking about it, um, yeah. I guess I find a lot of DJs develop. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon for a DJ to develop a slightly different relationship with records. You know, like records become your, to some extent, like your work materials or something like yeah. that. It's only some DJs that never lose that sort of. I think you just you said earlier, like a kid in a candy shop. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm still a fanboy and still an enthusiast, and I've still got that mania. Yeah, it's quite worrying sometimes, but it's, 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 I mean, I've still got it. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up looking back again to the 80s. I mean, I was really into soundtracks or, and uh, if you're into a movie, uh, let's say Blade Runner, you know, the only way you could really remember that movie was to buy the soundtrack, you know, or read about it in a magazine. And um, so I've always had that kind of hoarding kind of mentality when it comes to culture like magazines or books and and vinyl, yeah, I still love love buying music, and I still I still love the format. But I think it's you know it's different for it's it's different for for younger the younger generation. I mean, luckily for them, I don't think they have to have the need to to consume like we we did. You know, you don't need to buy music or books. Maybe unless you really want it to keep it. But when we were collecting disco back in the late 90s when we got really into it you know we'd have to go and see a record dealer you know there was no discogs no ebay and uh it was you know it was difficult you had to go digging you know go on trips me and joel used to travel to america and go to the wfmu record fair said joel from a uh, quiet Quite village a, yeah yeah and he's like one of the biggest record diggers in the uk and you know it was very very different so i mean it's if you wanted to have samples for for production like sound effects or or beats or anything i mean you, you needed to go out and get them you now you know if i'm really stuck then i might go onto youtube or i might look f elsewhere you know or i might ask a friend <laughs> <laughs> someone who knows how to get something but you know it's, it was completely you had to have it so that's why i've got walls and walls of of you know records just for sampling or you know you, you had to have that stuff mm. you know there was no way around it you know <laughs> yeah i th thought it was funny that a minute ago you said your kind of uh undying love for this stuff you said it was kind of worrying yeah um but i think the the funny thing is you're actually incredibly lucky like a lot a lot of people i mean the opposite would spell out a bad situation for yeah. you like if you were you know flying around up there djing yeah. and um didn't a hundred percent want to be there. Like people don't really have control over that, you know. Whether, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just interesting to me, like why it is that for many people, 
the thrill of uh, dance floor, the thrill of a rave is something that even if it's very strong for a while and even mm-hmm. if it's strong enough that you make great music and DJ really well, um, it sort of takes on a, a, you know, loses some of its polish sooner or later. Yeah. And it's curious to me how someone else that sort of is like you in that regard is Marcel Detman. Yeah. He, I remember he had a line where he said when he's walking home from Hard Wax, the records he just bought, he's just as excited as when he was on the train home from Hard Wax as, yeah. a, as a teenager. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's, it's st- it remains so strong for you? Um, I don't know. I guess it's, there's always that thing about getting something new and, um, yeah, listening to something that's brand new, that's, that's that a record label's released, and you you know if you get the finished product and you put it on at home. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's still the same as when I was twelve or thirteen, I guess. And I think that's the same with the whole kind of club experience. I mean, talking about Marcel, I, I think the first gig that Marcel and I did together was like two thousand and six or two thousand five in the canteen, opposite Berkheim and. Um, after the gig, we went, I think it was a Sunday, and Boris was playing in Panorama Bar, and uh, it was a summer, summer's day. But, you know, I had, that, again, that feeling of being a teenager. When I'd, I'd already played in the club, but I'd never really, ex- my first experience wasn't that amazing. And, of course, going back that second time, you know, you, you walked in that room and... Have you know you feel like you know I don't know you get that getting goosebumps goosebumps and yeah and then you, you realize this is what it's all about you know and I from that you know especially hearing guys like Boris playing I I was like wow these guys are playing these records and it was all this stuff that I'd been collecting in the nineties so, you know so it's like the cycles and especially with like music it's the same you know discovering like an old record is can be as great as discovering a new record and the thrill of being in a record store and not recognizing any of the sleeves is unbelievable. And, <laughs> you know, I get goosebumps thinking about it. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I wanted to mention that that part of your way of working that you you seem to always have new things bubbling up. There's quite a bit we haven't even mentioned yet. Um, did um, Pyramids of Mars? He's still yeah. doing uh, Cabin Fever. Yeah, yeah, we we just with. Um, Rebirth or Records 2.0. We've uh, now relaunched Pyramids of Mars as well. And what do you mean by uh, Records 2.0? Well, it's kind of um, with the hiatus or with, I guess it was like a rebirth, finally getting the label back on track. And um, so, and it's got, you know, we've, we've changing the, the feel, not the feel musically, but feel maybe with the artwork. And the label's kind of, pretty much based here now which is great and um, in Berlin and um, yeah we, we're working on Pyramids of Mars and trying to make that as a standalone label more kind of ex- experimental left field sounding stuff yeah and trying to separate all the different projects out of course I'm I'm still doing the, the label with Jamie Fry the double arm and um, that's we're, st- we're still sporadically releasing records when we can when we can find the music that fits. And um, yeah, so there's lots of different uh, avenues. I understand if you don't want to go into specifics, but about the hiatus, I'm just curious. I mean, records from the outside seems like a quite healthy operation. Um, But what are the kind of challenges a label like records would face that would force it into that sort of position of having to take a break for a year and Um, a half? I mean, there was lots of different things that happened. I mean, I, 
I got I got pretty sick in the middle of 2013. I ended up in hospital for a couple of weeks and um, had my tonsils removed. And it was kind of a bit of a wake up call for me. And took a step back. Was more focused on looking at what was going on with the label and everything around me, personal life. You know, I was just I I was sober then for nearly well until the beginning of 2015. It was good, good for me, but it, with everything that I kind of, everything that happened, um, quite a lot of things transpired that meant that the label had to be put on hold. And um, But it's good now. I mean, it, it was kind of like the label was was a little bit sick and we had to kind of fix it, you know, and uh, it took a while. But yeah, it was, I think it's just one of the challenges, like you say, challenges that faces a lot of labels and I mean it's as the label grows and um, there's over 400 titles on records you know we're up to I think we're nearly at uh, records 90 and uh, it's a lot of music a lot of albums and um, this needs to be looked after there needs to be you know the accounting management everything has to be you know it's got to be taken care of and this is this isn't easy you know especially as Sales decrease, you know, you've still got to do all this this stuff and it's, it takes money and it takes time. But um, yeah, I mean, we've found a way to, to, to make things make things good again and make, make it right. So, And is that a matter of just smart business, smart accounting and things like that? Or is it more of a creative thing? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm terrible with money and it's not really my forte. I mean, I, I'm, I, like, I know how to spend it. <laughs> you know I've always said this when I'm talking to to artists who want to launch their own businesses I mean you need good accounting and that's really crucial and and to stay on top of what's going on you know and yes, especially it's... when you're, you're especially when you know records is like a family and we've got you know artists like Nina or, or you know people that are it becomes a close close circle of friends you know it becomes more than business it, you know and you spend a lot of time with these people we could have just could have just shut the label, you know. But of course, my music's in there. Like, there's there's a lot of yeah. It's it's, it's too precious to to just let it go. So mm. it was it was worth spending the time to fix all the problems. And um, yeah, it took a long time, but we got there. <laughs> For you as a as an artist, as a creative person, how much sort of satisfaction do you get out of running a record label? You know, versus making music and DJing? I guess it goes hand in hand. I mean, it's, I really love working with, with other artists and really, really, I like seeing the whole process from start to finish, whether it's the artwork or getting the tracks mastered, remixes, that kind of thing. I like the, I love the whole process. Mm. It's very challenging these days because, of course, you've got to realize that there are so many limitations with what you can achieve. You know, I'd love to do, spend thousands and thousands on on crazy remixes or, you know, and stuff like that. But it's just not possible, you know, especially when you're, you can only sell a few hundred or a few thousand. So it's it's tricky. It's a tricky game. There's maybe compared to DJing or producing, it's more about, you know, facing certain realities where it's like you can't yeah, just do it every Yeah, I really enjoy it. And we've, we've signed some really cool stuff for this year and... Um, it's just about, of course, selling the music, 
but also making sure people can get it, you know, yeah. and it's a lot of work, I think, these days. It's a lot of work, but yeah, it's still worth it. You touched on earlier the kind of buzz of producing music yeah. and the buzz of buying records. What's the buzz of of curating a label? Um, well, I mean, there's so many parts to it, but I, mean, I think, again, it's like... Um, it's that thing from, you know, signing a record or hearing a demo to then receiving a package with the, f the finished copies, you know, and hoping that they're going to be okay, you know, and hoping that everything, every part of it, from the label copy to the artwork to how it sounds, you know, hoping that there's no faults with the pressing, that it's been shrink-wrapped, you know, making sure that, you know, all these parts are right. But, you know, it's, it's great. And especially if you see, you know, if I'm, playing and people come up to you with records or you know if, if i'm with the dj in the club and, and you know i remember being with i think like with ryan and he's got like he was showing me it was ryan edit and he was showing me every mr g record that he had in his his box you know and it's these things like that it's you know it makes it all worthwhile and again it's you know if, if we can if i can help and support other artists i mean it's it's been amazing to see how well nina's done and um you know, from meeting her in, in Australia in, like, I think, 2006 or 2007. Wow, is that long ago? Yeah, and um, me and Gerd Janssen hearing her DJing to, from that to then signing records from her and, you know, having to convince clubs to let her play. And But we had records, you know, we had a label. We had this platform that enabled us to put new artists into <laughs> clubs where we had residences like Panorama or, or Rex and... In that way, it's great because, you know, people hopefully they will believe in you and trust you that you can bring the right artists to the table and not, you know, it's been the opposite of bringing, you know, something that just doesn't work. So, And I guess, you know, it's it's not an easy, in many ways, it's not an easy industry. It's not an easy way to make a living. So I guess if you can help out, yeah, artists I'm, you believe in, in your for friends. For sure. And I mean, and I mean, of course... Everyone wants the newest thing these days, but it's still hard. I mean, to to get people into clubs and to to convince promoters that you know you should book this person. Well, in in that respect, it's great if you can have a, a label night or a label part showcase uh, in clubs where you can bring new talent. And um, you know, of course, with Nina, that's just been a huge success. Uh, much earlier, you said something about how. As you kind of get more successful, it gets harder and harder to balance all the different parts yeah. of. But you seem to have it sort of worked out. Your output is really consistent, and you run a label, you yeah. make music, you DJ. What did you learn over the years? That sort of, you know, how did you find that balance? Um, I think. Well, I think it took me a long time, and um, I'm still learning it all the time. And um, it's not easy. I mean, I would love to to have more time to to make more music. I'm also kind of interested in in other things, so it's 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 tricky. I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky to run the label. I think over the last few years, I've, I've slowed down definitely on how much I'm touring and um, probably DJing more, say, more locally, so more in mainland Europe. And mm. you need, I mean, you do need time. You need time to run these things. I'm really lucky. I'm working with Jamie Fry and. You know, he's great. He's helping running, run records in, in Berlin and I've got a great label manager who's in London. And yeah, I think, yeah, it's just not easy, but we it's doable, you mm. know. But as we said, I've got this problem. I, I keep starting all these new things and I've just launched this web store, but the, ultimately the web store 
I've, I'm hoping is the, is the final platform <laughs> for everything to go in, you know, like this box where it fits, everything mm. fits in there. So, yeah. When you said um, you're interested in other things, do you mean like other creative projects or just? Yeah, like- I mean like like making t-shirts or art projects and the things. You know, you need time to listen to music with all of the touring and with everything else. You know, it's again you need time to just sit down and listen to, to the music, especially the music I buy. You know, I've, I've, I try and make the time to to sit down and go through it all and listen to it. You know, because I miss that. I mean, when you're a teenager, you just spend all your time just like listening to music. That's all I, all I did, you know. But now, of course, you've got the laptop, you've got your phone. There's so many distractions and, you know, it's, it's important to switch it all off and just listen to music. I saw somewhere you sort of jokingly referred to yourself as part of the over 40 set. Yeah, did uh, I? Of, yeah, of, of DJs, I guess. Right. Um, I mean, and I guess in a general sense, What's that like, or how is DJing as a profession? You know, well, I mean, I, th- I guess I, th- I, st- I think I was still thought I was a teenager up to about the age of forty-two, and then uh, I've kind of realised that maybe my body doesn't function as well as it did. Oh, it's it's fascinating that some of the guys at the top of the game, like Robert Hood, for instance, who's amazing. I mean, you know, he's. He doesn't live in Berlin or Detroit, and yet he's he's so on it, you know. And the music he makes is incredible, and and so I, th- I think we're living in an era where, of course, these gravers, as they're known, you know, these are, <laughs> these are the people that are still, you know, they're, they're, they're still into it. I've got lots of friends who are still mad about partying or or music, and of course, as the older you get, well, depends, but. For a lot of people, they may have more money, so they can buy even more records, you know, yeah. as they get older. So I think definitely there's been this generation of guys in their 30s or 40s who started, who are now obsessed with discogs and stuff like this, you know. And I think that's, that's definitely maybe an older generation thing than maybe a younger generation. But, you know, I mean, look at also look at DJ Harvey. You know, I think he's in his 50s now and or Francois Kavorkian. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't think it's any different. Hmm. I guess it's just interesting to me how, you know, on a kind of a superficial level, you, just I guess the activity of going out feels yeah. like it's a young thing to do or whatever. But then, as you say, there are so many compelling examples. Um, there's so much evidence that yeah. you can basically just carry on. Yeah, I mean, I, I used the example of like, I mean, Francois, I think he's still as enthusiastic as he probably was when he was like a teenager from the sound of you know, how he, how he speaks about music. And, you know, I don't see there, there, there being any difference. So, you know, I think if you're into it, you're really into it. You know, and I think there are these people where it just is, that's their life, you know, that's, that's with me. It's, I, I don't know any different, you know, that's all we do. So when I was growing up, I was really into skateboarding. And um, when I was 16, I didn't know any skateboarders who were like 50, <laughs> but now it's normal. You know, it's normal for the dads to be skateboarders, you know, you know, and still have this kind of very much of a, a kind of young, young person's lifestyle. Yeah, mm. I don't know. I mean, that's it's kind of the norm, you know. So, of course, there's now um, kids that are probably going out with their parents raving. So, <laughs> yeah, I know for a fact that there are. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's and it's, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, I think. 
I think in the, the, the 70s when I was growing up, you know, being a teenager, you were still very much a teenager and adults were adults. But, you know, that's that, that's all changed, I think. I feel like uh, I don't even need to ask this question, but um, what lies ahead? Well, I mean, as I said, it's 10 years of records this year. I'm hoping that I will finally make an album as record, another album, because it's been like 10 years since I made the first one. And I've kind of, I've always put it off. I don't know why. And I've, I've, I've amassed a lot of material that I want to use. And um, I've also kind of, over the last year, I've, the last two years, I've really been getting back into the studio environment. And, and um, I really love it. I'm really enjoying it. And um, so I think there's definitely going to be more music. And um, yeah, so other things. We're, I'm working at the moment on this web store and uh, we're working on a collection of t-shirts and working with it. We have, we've got this, this platform, which is like a marketplace for cool stuff. And um, we want to start selling more music there and just having this cool little store, this online store. I'm really passionate about that. I really, I'm really enjoying that. I'm really seeing it. I really liked liking how it's, it's developing. And I'm hoping that as, as things maybe shrink, you know, that we can bring, some cool labels on boards. You know, I'm quite into this sort of self-distribution thing, especially mm. when it comes to T-shirts or, or books or small, like, products. You know, and there's, I think it's all just about, you know, if we can create a nice space. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe we'll open a store in Berlin. That might be the next thing. 